Welcome to our Sunday seminar on life after separation uh, with uh, licensed marriage and family therapist, Roy Kim. Uh, he is my current therapist. Um, I've been meeting with him and a group of men for the past like year and a half or so. So, and it's been really great. And what I really appreciate about Roy is that he really brings a lot of his own personal experience and like um, isn't shy about sharing some of, you know, the, the past things that he's gone through. So um, I'm really excited that he's here. Uh, I'm really excited that all of you are here to join us for this seminar. Our uh, public launch date is set for Um, oh, yeah, it's on Easter Sunday. Okay, so uh, Easter Sunday is going to be our launch day. We have been um, kind of figuring a lot of things out during COVID, as I'm sure a lot of people have been doing. We actually started meeting as a house church before COVID, and then we were hoping to launch in 2020. Obviously, that couldn't happen. We just met online for two years. We tried a few different uh, venues out and then we settled here and we like this space so we're going to be here for the long haul and uh, we have a worship leader who uh, was one of our church members before and we have a Sunday school teacher and um, yeah so we have a lot of uh, things set in place finally so we're able to launch on Easter Sunday so please come back on Easter Sunday bring your friends and next week is going to be Palm Sunday and we're gonna be having a regular Sunday gathering next week, um, but please be sure to come back on Easter Sunday. We're gonna have tacos. We're gonna have fun games with like legit, real good prizes, um, not just like candy, okay? Like we, when we do games, like we wanna actually do it really well. So yeah, and then we're gonna have like music and a really uh, relevant, applicable message and all of that good stuff. So yeah, come back on Easter Sunday. And last month, we had a grief seminar with my coworker over at the hospital where I work. Uh, she's a bereavement counselor, and that is available on our website for you to watch in our archives page. So check that out. And for all the other uh, relevant announcements regarding our church, please look in the bulletins um, below. All right, and then we provided this kind of blank space in the back. If, just in case you want to take notes, I'm going to be taking notes um, while, during Roy's talk. So I would like to introduce Roy. So um, ther therapy was kind of like his like second career. Uh, I first met him many, many years ago. We we're just talking about this, like what year was it when we first met? I think it was like 2007 uh, when we were both getting ordained in the same uh, denomination way back then. And uh, he... Uh, went into therapy as kind of like a second career and like he's really good at it so uh, he's a full-time therapist he has his own uh, practice called new legacy counseling over in diamond bar and that's also where he lives in diamond bar with his wife and daughter and yeah and he's been my therapist for the past year and a half so uh, we're really excited to have him he's led a couple webinars for our church um, online before uh, when we we're just meeting online on religious spiritual abuse or were they both on spiritual abuse i think they were both on spiritual abuse so um that's also available on our archives page but you kind of have to dig pretty deep in there uh that was uh, like a year and a half ago Jeez. um yeah so let's all warmly welcome roy Yay! <laughs> all right thanks al um good to see you everyone Um, two thousand nine Thanksgiving night. Um, I come home with uh, my then wife, and uh, she had been really distant for at least a year. And, you know, I had been having a lot of talks with her about what was going on. Um, I know that she had gone through a lot and, uh, but because she wasn't 
talking to me about what was really going on for her, I just sort of gave her a lot of space. But that evening after I just couldn't hold it in anymore, I pretty much demanded her, tell me what's going on. And then that was the evening that she had finally confessed to me that she had been having a long affair. And I remember that, uh, I remember standing up from where we were sitting in the, like the kind of the TV room. And then I walked over to where the kitchen was and I leaned against, you know, the, the drawers and the counter and my, my knees physiologically gave out and I just fell to the floor because I couldn't process that information, you know? And so when that happened, about a thousand things rushed through my head. Uh, one of them being, uh, it's over, you know? And when you enter into a stage of trauma like that, you can't think straight. You're just, everything either goes dark or it becomes, it becomes blurry. Uh, nothing makes sense. And that was the beginning of a pretty long stage of torment and of, um, asking myself questions, asking God questions, asking sometimes no one questions because I was numbing out too much. Um, but it was such a dark, dark time. And if I could go back into time, knowing what I know now, I think I would have done things, some things differently, but at the same time, I may have done certain things exactly the same because I think I just needed to go through a lot of that pain to be able to get to the other side. Um, I don't know how many of you are going through something similar to me because I think separation can occur uh, because of something like betrayal like I went through separation can occur because two people drift slowly apart separation can occur um very respectfully to each other where they're like you know what um i treasure you but you know we both we both think that this is not going to work out there could be um you know financial mis mismanagement there could be addictions involved so many different reasons why there is a separation. But one of the biggest common denominators for uh, the experience of going through a separation is um, just immense grief. And that grief is because um, what you had with that person was important. It was meaningful. It was um, something that uh, gave you a lot of uh, value. And so to not have that anymore is uh, a very difficult thing to, uh, to try to make sense of and even let alone uh, survive. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was going through my own trauma was um, Al mentioned that I was, you know, a pastor. And when that Thanksgiving 2009 occurred, that was only about one month after I had resigned, officially resigned as a pastor. I had told my church about a year before that I was gonna be stepping down, but I gave them a lot of cushion to try to find uh, some ways to kind of, you know, transition after I left. Um, but 
I still had the mentality of a pastor. And one of the mentalities that pastors have is reputation. You know, kind of like a spiritual reputation. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about was, what are people going to think about me? Right? Because I had like this spiritual reputation to uphold. Um, if I'm the one up there trying to teach God's word, and I'm trying to encourage people to follow God, and now, um, you know, even though the trauma happened to me, maybe the expectation was, I should just find a way to um, hang on to God and to make anything, do everything that I can to make it work, right? Even if she's the one that betrayed me, I should be the, maybe the bigger person or the big, have the bigger heart and to forgive her and to do all these things to kind of show to other people that I was um, some kind of a spiritual giant, you know? And, and by doing so, I would, uh, I would kind of set an example for, you know, other people that I was ministering to, to kind of do the same thing. And so I was wrestling with that idea. It's like, you know, can I, can I do that? But, you know, I won't go into all the details of what happened between me and her, but the, the bottom line was um, she was unable to do the things that were necessary in my mind to really repair what she had done, you know? And so because she wasn't capable of doing so, I was left with the decision of, do I carry this marriage on by myself for God knows who, uh, God knows how long, or do I um, say goodbye permanently to the person that was like everyone, everything that I was looking for in a, in a life partner, you know, it was an impossible decision to make because there was immense pain on both sides, but I chose to uh, file for divorce maybe about almost half a year after the initial uh, discovery. And um, I think that was enough time for me to see whether this was really gonna work out or not. But that, that, that whole thing about reputation was such a tough one for me to swallow because I'm, I'm thinking um, I've been working so hard to kind of develop a spiritual reputation and now even this is gonna be thrown away. Um, so I coped very poorly. Um, I, I was in so much pain and there was no way for me to kind of make sense of what had happened that uh, I immediately went into um, a long numbing period. You know, uh, there was hardly a time that I wasn't drinking something, you know, whether it was, um, you know, wine or beer or hard liquor or whatever it was like, like the day just seemed too long. And so if I could just numb it out with alcohol, uh, cigarettes, watching porn, you know, whatever it was to get my mind off of the pain I was feeling, I would do it. No questions asked. It was almost like an automatic, like knee-jerk reaction for me to do so because the pain was just too much. What I didn't realize, um, the immense guilt that I feel for not taking care of my body, not taking care of my mind, not taking care of my spirit also was taking a toll on me. So as I was trying to deal with the pain, I was causing myself pain. And that became a, a pretty bad cycle for me as well. And I couldn't quite explain this to people. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't explain it to people, people because I pretty much assumed that they wouldn't understand and they would just tell me, stop doing these things, you know, pull yourself together and stop doing these things. But if only they knew how much pain I was going through, um, maybe they would understand, but I didn't want to take that chance. Um, thankfully, there were some people in my life that I could actually share these things with and they wouldn't like judge me for not only my decision to divorce, but also the ways that I was coping with the divorce. But 
if some of you are going through some of this right now and you feel really, really isolated because you don't really know who to speak to because they wouldn't understand your pain, I get you, you know, that's a, that's a reality. And so I'll, I'll share a little bit later about some of the things that you can do regarding that situation, but that was my situation for sure. I, there, was, there was a real reality that I was living in where I couldn't share with certain people what I was going through and how I was coping with it. Um, and sometimes the pain was so great that uh, I would have really violent thoughts not violence towards myself, although some people would have those types of uh, experiences, but I had violent thoughts towards the, um, the person that she had an affair with. Um, and I started to scare myself. You know, I started to scare, I, I, I don't think I ever really entertained such violent thoughts in my whole life until, until that season. But when I did, I was realizing I've worked too hard to, uh, you know, in, in, in graduate school uh, to become a counselor, only to commit an act of violence and maybe go to jail for the rest of my life. Like I was not gonna do that, but I wanted to do it, you know? So because everything in, um, in basically Southern California, reminded me of her and the affair partner and what they did, everything was traumatic to me. Driving around was traumatic for me. Watching TV was traumatic for me. Everything was traumatic. Um, our, our mutual friends, they were traumatic to me because they would just remind me of her. And so I had to do something really difficult. Um, I ended up moving to Northern California to complete my internship. And it's tough because my friends were here. My family was here. Everything that was familiar was here. Even though I grew up in the Bay Area, that was like kind of like my hometown. That's why I chose it. But still like everything that was familiar for me was here. And so I had to make an ex executive decision for my own sanity's sake. And so I moved there and internship there for three years. And during that three year process is where a lot of the healing took place for me, where I was not constantly reminded what was um, such a dark body for me. My heart and my mind was finally ready. I was able to move um, back down here. And thankfully, the trauma was healed enough where I could kind of re-enter into life and be functional and do things that were uh, kind of a reflection of how I had healed. So that's kind of a, a, a snapshot of what I went through. And again, that was back in 2009 when that discovery happened. And a lot of the healing occurred over years. And, um, you know, four years ago, um, I uh, remarried and um, I have a lovely wife and uh, she has uh, her own daughter and I'm I'm just I'm so happy to be her stepdad and it's you know that's that's our family now and you know there's kind of a redemptive story in that that's a completely different kind of a story uh, maybe for another time but those dark periods are still vivid in my mind um, it doesn't produce the same internal reaction obviously that it did back then but I still remember what it was like to be during that in that darkness. And if you are in the midst of that darkness now, or if you know someone who's in the midst of that darkness, I hope that what I share today is somewhat helpful for you, whether you can relate to it or whether it will give you some sort of tools to relate to the person who, who is going through something like that. Um, I brought visual aids as a way to talk about like stages of healing when you go through a, a, a significant separation. Um, so I chose, I don't know whether the camera can pick this up, but this is a little Lego minifigure. And so this, this figure will represent um, me, but also maybe can represent any one of you uh, who, who's going through the separation. 
<clears throat> so I'd like for you to think about this table as a timeline, okay? So if you're going from left to right, you know, this is like ground zero on the very left. This is like where the initial, uh, either what, whether it's a betrayal, whether it's massive conflict, whether it's just all the, the powerful energy that, that drives two people apart. That's where you're starting. And then this is the continuum as you go through time, you know, towards God knows where, right? But if we start on this end, When separation occurs, and it's a very significant separation where um, this relationship meant something, it's going to feel like this. So the pieces are broken up, and there's going to be uh, a lot of difficulty in functioning. You don't have your legs, you don't have your head, you don't have your hands, you don't have, nothing's really working, you know? And if you're in this stage right now, one of the things that you'll have to uh, acknowledge for yourself is that we're not meant to function properly at a time like this. It's irrational to be functioning properly when you're broken up, okay? And the reason why we're broken up is not because we're strong enough, that we're, that we're not strong enough. The reason why we're broken up is because of what we lost, you know? The value of that relationship or maybe the value of the dream, right? Maybe we were with someone and we thought they were one thing. And in that thought, we, we placed all of our dreams into that thought. And then they turned out to be someone that, that we had no idea that they, that they were. And so it's easy for people to say, just move on from him, just move on from her. But they don't understand the kind of dreams that were embedded in that relationship. So this shattering of ourselves is reflective of how important that relationship was for us or how important that dream was for us. So um, it's gonna take significant amount of time for this body to come back together again. But for us to expect that it's gonna happen anytime soon, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I want to be as realistic as possible. It's going to take a lot of time. And we need to allow our mind and our heart to recognize that that's going, that's going, to, be, uh, that's going to be the reality. I, I mentioned to you that when I crumbled to the floor, one of the things that I was thinking was that my life was over. Okay. So to reflect that, you know, again, if this is if this is the you know the, the the continuum moving forward, and this is the future, it felt like just a lumpy mass in front of me. I had no idea what I was going to do moving forward. Everything was just blind. You know, my 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 face was in the ground. My legs were over here, and this was my future. And this whole thing is the thing that fueled the drinking, the smoking, the porn binging, the, the TV show binging, the isolation. All this stuff, was just, it, was, it was reflective of what was going on inside of me. That was my only way to cope, is to numb. Sometimes this may be manifest in the ways that you pick fights with people. It may be manifest in the ways that you um, maybe self-sabotage, you know? Um, there are some people maybe uh, as, <clears throat> as, um, as youngsters, 
when we didn't quite know how to cope with things, you know, we would learn how to, uh, how to, how to cut. We'd learn how to uh, do things that would just inflict pain upon ourselves because it was just too much for us to, to, to bear. Sometimes those old habits would come full force now that we're an adult. Um, but I get it. You know, I mean, obviously I wouldn't want anything, any harm to come to you, but I get why we do that is because everything is just, it just feels so hopeless. And that's why people on the outside, when they don't quite understand what it's like to have trauma in their lives, the only words that will come from their mouth is, <clears throat> uh, oh, you'll be fine, you know, or um, ah, just get over it you know, sort of thing. And they, they mean well in saying that, but sometimes it's because they can't relate. And sometimes it's because they hate seeing you in such a dark place that, they, that they're trying to rush you out of it for their own sake. They're so uncomfortable seeing you in this place that they're trying to get you out of it. Again, I get it, but that's not helpful. It's not helpful for you. Um, so this trauma is normal. Uh, it's, it's a place where we are thinking things like, um, I will never be safe again. I will never be whole again. I can never trust my intuition again. I can never trust people again. Um, I'm the only one who's going through something like this. And maybe amongst your friend circle, you are, but definitely not in the world. You're not. You're not the only one. Um, and um, sometimes uh, I, I didn't do a whole, uh, I did maybe some of it, but I do know that some people who have been experiencing some of the things that I went through uh, when they've been, been betrayed, they go into full on detective mode. You know, they will stalk. They will try to figure out like, what else are you keeping from me? Um, they will follow uh, their partner wherever they go, um, kind of in, like in their car. Uh, they will track their phone. They will, you know, investigate all their emails. It's a massive amount of energy trying to uh, play detective and trying to figure out, like, you know, what else am I missing here? And I get it. Um, but unfortunately, that amount of massive energy that's being produced, that that's being invested into due to detective work is energy that's not being spent towards other things that are probably more helpful for their life, you know, such as taking care of their body, such as getting good sleep, such as, you know, focusing on their work, uh, focusing on their kids, you know, things like that. So um, th these are some of the things that happen in this stage of trauma. So the biggest question I want to leave you here uh, as far as you know this first stage is are you allowing yourself to accept that this stage of the separation the, the initial stage is really really difficult you know can you allow yourself to say it's meant to be this hard you know um, because if you feel like you are Superman, Superwoman, and I should just be able to be okay with this, you're probably in denial. And I don't blame you for that, because actually denial is one of the big stages of grief. But denial will just sort of delay the inevitable. You're going to actually prolong the amount of time it takes to heal from the pain. Okay. Um, <clears throat> after some time, we'll get to like this middle stage where things get a little bit more clear. You feel a little bit more strength in your legs. You'll have a little bit more um, energy to be able to focus on certain things that are, you know, healthy for you. But how do we get there? Like, how do we get from this stage of complete devastation 
to like a middle stage where things are starting to come together. Um, I have a few things in mind. Mm. Who you hang out with, who are you, who your community is, right? Um, that's gonna be a really big part of how you get from this stage to the middle stage. I know a lot of people <clears throat> um, when they are devastated by a breakup, uh, they may uh, move back in with their, their, their folks, you know, mom or dad or both. And maybe that's to save money. Maybe that's to just have some famil familiarity. For a lot of people that can work. For other people, it's a disaster. And the reason why it could be a disaster is because uh, sometimes, So we're now uh, kind of in this middle stage of the first and the middle stage here. And being with the parents and the old familiar interactions um, actually may delay the healing, okay? Because they have certain ways of interacting with you that feel like harm. They don't mean to, but it feels like every time that they talk, everything, every time that they behave, it's like a sword, you know? Um, they're controlling maybe, or they are minimizing, or they are doing things that unintentionally shame you, or they make you feel like you need to rush to get to another stage of healing and you're just not ready for that yet. Whatever those old familiar family interactions are that maybe drove you crazy as a teenager and you bring that back into your adult life and yes, you're saving money, but, but you're also, your, your mental health is going crazy because of it. I'm not gonna tell you don't do that, but I'm gonna tell you to be, have your eyes wide open about what's actually happening. And can I empower you to make an executive decision that's actually good for your mental health. Even if that means you don't save as much money, but maybe you are spending, maybe you're living uh, with a friend who is a very, very safe person for you. Um, maybe you get some roommates that feel safe for you. Living alone can work as long as you don't isolate yourself too much. But just, I just encourage you to think about what's actually the best living situation and social situation that you can find yourself in so that you're given space to feel pain and you're given space to express yourself and you're given space to not only express yourself but express yourself in a way where it lands where people are hearing you and validating your experience and not making you feel even more uncomfortable for what you're going through, okay? That's one of the things I could really encourage you as you experience separation. Um, or again, if you're not the one going to the separation, but you know someone who is, I encourage you not to be that person who drives them crazy, right? To be the person that listens and, and, and asks them to, share with you their experience and help me understand, you know, what's going on so that I can cry with you. I can groan with you. I could just sit in silence with you, you know? Um, so this is one thing for you to consider. Another thing to consider is if you're in a situation where um, there's a separation that's going to occur and you don't know the first thing about um, 
finances, taxes, um, uh, child custody, um, all the, 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 the big scary things about not being with someone that you were living with before and, and kind of doing that jointly, you might need some help. You know, you might need some help outside of yourself. There is a, uh, there's an organization called Second Saturday. Um, I think the website is secondsaturday.com. They are an organization that is meant to provide um, resources through workshops for people in, in the middle of a separation or who are fresh with a separation. And they bring in speakers, uh, a tax consultant, a, a finance consultant. Um, they bring a, a, in a, a mental health uh, specialist. They bring in a family law attorney. Um, and they come in, you pay a very reduced price to get very valuable information and for you to be able to ask them questions. And, uh, you know, they, they make themselves available for you to hire them, uh, you know, for, for, your, for their services. But um, just having an outside resource to guide you through some of the really big questions that come with separation and divorce uh, can really be helpful because what if we're in shambles here and we're trying to pick, put the pieces back together, but because we don't know certain things about taxes and about finances and about custody and all that kind of stuff, and we make a really big mistake regarding those steps, well, then we've now, maybe right when we put on our legs, uh, this big financial mistake has now taken our legs off again. You know, so because our heads aren't thinking uh, properly a lot of times in that trauma stage, we might need someone on the outside that helps us kind of navigate through some of these things that they can do some of the thinking for us, some of the coaching for us. Okay, so that's one thing for you to consider. But, you know, I also mentioned like, you know, your social settings. If you have certain people <clears throat> who really don't get you, you may have had a lot of fun with them, just kind of going out, having bowling, going to movies, you know, playing video games together. But then when, when, when things really get, you know, to the nitty gritty and you're talking with them about things that are so painful for you and they don't know how to handle that, um, that really might set you back. So you might need to find uh, people in your life who are going through something that you're going through. Um, people who, when they share about their pain, you're like, yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you, you might need to find, um, maybe uh, there's someone in your community, there's, there's a pastor in your community, uh, there is a, a friend of yours who knows some people who are, who are going through a, a separation. Um, there's, a, there's a ministry called Divorce Care that is nationwide and uh it's you know they some churches they 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 host it and there's a curriculum it is a christian curriculum um but it's for people who are going through a divorce and who want to be able to talk through their experience of the divorce with other people going through the same thing that could be so healing um, if you have a therapist your therapist might have some people in their caseload who are also going through a divorce and you might ask them you know hey therapist um is there a possibility that you can start a group you know with me and some of your other clients who are going through the similar things that we can kind of have some support together and they may be willing to do something like that for you but whatever it takes isolation is not the answer even though it feels good because you feel like you know kind of want to put your helmet on and hide from the world. I know that this feels good sometimes, and I know that felt good for me, but what this really does is it just kind of delays the inevitable. Um, 
So you might want to think about putting in a bit more energy into trying to find the right kinds of people to hang out with so that your experience gets validated repeatedly, okay? Um, and the last thing I'll say here is when <clears throat> you go through the appropriate amount of agony, it is, and it is, it is agony, um, and you feel like your, um, your body is back together, you're able to kind of function, and you're just kind of getting from the middle stage of healing to maybe like this stage of someday flourishing. One of the things for you to consider um, <clears throat> is rediscovering yourself. Okay. Rediscovering yourself. Who you are at this stage is going to be very different than who you were at this stage and also who you were prior to this even. Because there's a lot of soul searching that goes on during this time. And if you do it right, okay, you're going to be able to ask certain questions about yourself that if you answer them with integrity, you'll be able to figure out what kind of life do I want to live now that I've gotten my legs under me? Do I want to remain the same person that I was over here? Because sometimes in the soul searching, you'll realize that who I was here was I was driven by anxiety. I was pleasing people at the expense of myself. You know, I was uh, chasing the American dream that my parents told me that I should chase, but it's not necessarily my case. Is, is my world going to be based upon, uh, you know, am I only whole if I'm married? If I'm only, is, am I only whole if I have, you know, the, the picket fence? You know, like, who says? Like, there are a lot of things that were, that were given to us as information, as advice, or even as instruction. And we just kind of chose it blindly, maybe because our parents said so, media said so, society said so. But when we're at a place where we, we are reinventing ourselves, you now have a chance to look back on all that and say, must it be so? You know, do I want to have that for the rest of my life? And if you say, no, I don't, and there are people who are still saying, oh, you better, you better, because that's their view of how life should be, then you might need to have some people on your, in your corner that say, look, you know, mom or dad or society, there are certain aspects of what you want from me that I aspire to as well, but not everything. And I think I need to kind of build up that, that courage muscle to say, I choose to have these things be a part of my life moving forward. Even if you don't like it, I know that you know, this may make you, make you feel disappointed, but I'm choosing these things because these things are meaningful to me. You know? um, so yeah, you can ask yourself, um, who will you be apart from being a role, right? Who will you be apart from being that person's wife, that person's husband, that person's boyfriend or girlfriend, that person's partner, you know? Who am I apart from being this person's daddy or this person's mommy, right? Who am I apart from being this person's daughter or son? A lot of times when we're in that part of, the, of life and this part of life, we're not, we don't even have the, the, the bandwidth 
to ask ourselves these questions. But when we're in, when we're in this part of life, um, we actually have an amazing luxury and amazing privilege to be able to ask ourselves that question. And that could set you up for the rest of your life in a way that makes you feel like, holy cow, like maybe this is actually true living. Yeah. So um, this is kind of like an overview of how healing happens, but I cannot give you a magic pill. It doesn't work like that. This part where you're all broken up, I can only tell it to you straight. It's the worst. The absolute worst. And you cannot have a shortcut through that. But I sure hope that you have people in your corner who can help you through this part. Because if you think that you could just kind of go through it alone, okay, maybe you can, but why? Why would you, <laughs> you know? Why would you go through this part alone? Um, I hope that you have someone or a group of people where you can go through this amount of darkness together so that you go through like the, the, the proper stages of repeasing and that one day you'll get to a place where you're not just good as new, just like I was back there. No, I wouldn't want that for you. I would want you to be a thousand times better than where you were over there. Because where you were over there, that might be just conformity. But where you are here is by choice. Yeah. So let me pause. Um, I know I said a lot but I'd love to be able to field any questions that you may have, whether it's for yourself, whether it's for someone that you know, um, that's what I'm here for. And I know that I just have my own story, but I also have a lot of other stories in my head because of the people that I've counseled. And I just hope that, um, you know, maybe uh, there's something that I can say that, could, that would be of help to you. Yeah, what a good question. Okay, so I don't know whether the mic picked that up, but um, the question is, if a person is in <clears throat> this broken stage and they haven't really had the experience, the life experience to be the type of person that would kind of share about their pain, not just this pain, but any sort of life pain. Um, and they've never really gotten information about their friends that would indicate that they are that kind of safe person. Like how do you vet those people in your life um, like how much do you share? How much do you, you know, do that? Because that's a really big risk, right? To be able to, to, to share that with th those types of people. Um, gosh, uh, let, me, let me think about that one for a second. Um, I actually think that step is for most people too big of a step. Um, I actually think because, and I've been, I'm speaking as a former pastor myself, I even think that speaking to a pastor is a big risk because not every pastor is emotionally safe. I remember before I went through my own trauma, uh, I don't consider myself, I didn't, I don't think I was myself an emotionally safe pastor. I was a very black and white pastor. Um, I was scripture, scripture, scripture. And if you don't align with scripture, tough luck. I was a jerk, <laughs> you know? Um, and there are many pastors like that. Not Al, of course, yeah. But, but there are many pastors who um, they mean well, but if you share with them something, they may go guns blazing with scripture and that does not feel safe at all. A person like this may have a better entry point, especially if they have really no experience in sharing very sensitive things. 
they may have a, 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 an easier entry point, maybe speaking to a therapist. Because therapists, um, they have significant training in creating emotional safety and trying to earn a person's trust. That may be kind of a slower process. And of course, it's kind of an expensive process. But there may be irreparable damage done if they try to speak to a pastor or a friend that they've never really tried before and it kind of blows up in their face like that might be even more costly than what you pay to a therapist you know so they may want to kind of practice uh speaking very uh sensitive things to a therapist first and kind of working out that muscle a little bit maybe the therapist can help them choose which conversations to have with people in their life. And maybe they could do some role play, you know, to see how you're gonna react if this person says this, or what amount of information that you're gonna share with those people. That therapist can be that containment for you to kind of work through those, those wrinkles. But that just sounds super risky, especially if you haven't had any kind of real experience telling this magnitude information to somebody. That's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, isolation versus solitude. Um, there's a solitude, uh, in my understanding of it, is an intentional practice to be by yourself for the sake of like getting more attuned to yourself or for meditation, or for getting in tune with nature. It's a, there's a real um, intentionality to it for the sake of either empowerment or clarity or things like that. Isolation generally is um, anxiety-driven and um, shame-driven where the world feels unsafe. I don't want accountability. I want to kind of do some self damage. I want to shirk responsibilities. I want to hide from the world. I want to put the blankets over me. I want to either starve myself or just eat Twinkies all day. And I don't want to, I want to roll into work late. Uh, I want to be completely disheveled. Uh, I don't want to do any sort of hygiene. Um, it's like, I'm going into my turtle shell and this may be indefinite. That's very different than solitude. Um, so I'm not saying that a person shouldn't be alone, but I think if a person chooses to be living by themselves, that they have some sort of a rhythm, um, some sort of a game plan in place where you're spending some quality time with the right kinds of people. But if you're just by yourself and you're not interacting with anybody, then all you're left with are your own thoughts. And a lot of times those thoughts in the middle of this kind of brokenness is I'm a failure. There's no hope for me. Um, all these wasted years, all that wasted energy, God is disappointed in me. I'm a failure to my family. Like we're just kind of swept up with all these thoughts all by ourselves. That is not solitude. Yeah, there's nothing good about that kind of, although I get it because I was there, but thank goodness that didn't last so long that I just plummeted and then became just like a shell of myself. Because when people are in isolation for that long with that kind of thinking, you're going to become really a shell. Yeah. So, yeah, we, I think there is merit in living by yourself because maybe there's, you know, we don't want to live with our parents. Uh, there are certain, you know, people in our lives that just kind of, um, you know, maybe wouldn't become good life partners, you know, roommates with us. And maybe the ones who would be good roommates you know, they already have their own living situations. They can't live with us. But, you know, for us to kind of plan to spend some time with the right people, I think would be really good. Yeah, good question. Um, that's 
That's the billion dollar question. Um, so uh, in case, you know, those online didn't hear the question, um, is it better to stay intact uh, with your partner or with your spouse uh, for the sake of the kids, even if uh, there's no real love between um, in the marriage? And, you know, uh, she was saying that uh, there are, uh, it's kind of typical of immigrant uh marriages, immigrant parents to kind of do that. Um, and unfortunately that, that is pretty stereotypical and stereotypical for a reason. Uh, I can't answer that uh, as a, uh, from, a, from a rule standpoint. Um, I can try to try to illustrate it. <clears throat> mm. So, okay. So, you know, little kids, and let's say And I know that this, uh, this uh, looks violent, um, but just for the sake of symbolism, you know, both husband and wife are, uh, have some sort of a kind of a sword here. Okay, so they're kind of like, it's symbolic of them fighting with each other. And the kids are, you know, they're smart. They're, they're watching. Um, do we stay together for the sake of the kids? As you were mentioning, there will be kids who say, maybe in hindsight, I just wish you guys would have divorced because I don't need to see this, okay? Because the potential there is that if they choose to divorce, the swords are down, and there's two households. And when they're with mom, there's no sword. She is potentially, ideally, her best self, even though she's, you know, maybe she's, you know, working a lot, you know, trying to make ends meet. And, but, but there's no person here to fight with. And she's maybe more attentive to the kids. And the same thing goes where the kids are with dad and no sword there, and he's attentive to the kids. In an ideal situation, given the circumstances, that'd be great because the kids don't have to witness that kind of thing anymore, okay? That's one scenario. Another scenario is, um, okay, maybe, maybe rather than them overtly fighting with each other, it's just them sort of, um, Maybe they're playing nice, you know, like they're, uh, they're civil with each other. They're kind of like roommates and the kids are watching. And I don't know, um, for those of you who grew up in a household where your parents were like that, where they're not like really affectionate with each other and they're not really, you could tell they're not really close, but they're more like roommates with each other that may or may not affect you as a child. You know, you may be, that, that may give you an indication of, oh, so that's what marriage is. You kind of, you know, you, you kind of grew up thinking, all right, marriage is being roommates and not really being close with each other. And that's kind of how you formulate your own ideas. Or maybe you, maybe you, you see that with your parents and then the kids are now watching TV or they're watching, um, you know, one of our favorite shows is This Is Us, right? And you see how like Jack and Rebecca are, are, are with each other. You're like, oh my gosh, like that is such a, such a good relationship. Or, or Friday Night Lights, you know, with Coach and, and Tammy. And they're like, oh my gosh, that relationship is so good, right? My parents are nothing like that. And so you're like, oh, but 
maybe intuitively we're like, oh, but this is, it's okay. And so we're kind of watching, watching them, you know, be together. But it's like, there's some drawbacks here too, because you maybe you just kind of learn that marriage is about brushing things under the rug. Maybe marriage is not really about real connection after all. It's just kind of like tolerating each other. That's one lesson that you can teach them. Or the marriage could be like this. You know, they're not fighting, but they're not really interacting with each other. And sometimes, you know, the kids are observing that too. Um, I think no matter what you do, whether you stay intact, um, whether there's a separation involved, kids are learning something. Kids aren't dumb, you know, and they have an idea of how to formulate their own thoughts about what they're witnessing. And um, the parents need to be as realistic as possible that um, sometimes it feels safe for them, even if, the, even if the parents are fighting with each other with the swords, maybe it does feel safe for them that at least mom and dad are within sight all the time, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes they really feel terrified whenever they fight, or sometimes they feel so uneasy that mom and dad are always like this. Sometimes we won't know. And so what I sometimes suggest to people is rather than trying to guess, maybe the four can go to family therapy. And this person is now asking questions to all of them about what it feels like when mom and dad are like this, or when mom and dad have the swords, or how would you feel if mom and dad were to split permanently? Like the therapist, the family therapist who kind of knows the situation and knows that maybe divorce is on the table, they can help navigate the questions to see how the kids actually think about things. You know, and that, that way there's no more guessing. If the parents hear that the kids really want the parents to split up because they're so sick and tired of the fighting, maybe that actually accelerates things for you guys. But if they, if they say, no, 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 we don't want mommy and daddy split, we'd rather have them fight rather than split up. Okay, that, that, may, that might make you pause. So again, like I can't really tell you the answer, but sometimes I know that um, someone on the outside can, fil can facilitate that kind of conversation to allow that sort of information to come out. But I totally hear you about your sister. Like if she's like, I just wish that they would have divorced. My, my ex was like that, you know? I just wish that they would have just gotten divorced. Yeah. Um, really depends, I think, on the person. It's such a tough, tough question to answer though. Okay, so if you, have a, if you have a loved one, friend or family member going through something like this, what are some specific things to do or not do? Um, <clears throat> let me start with the things to not do. Um, if I were you, I would, don't do that. Don't ever, ever do that. Um, that's, a, that's a quick way for them to say, man, look at the time, I better, I better get going, you know? And maybe they will never invite to have you out for a coffee again. Um, one thing to really consider is um, how good, um, is our empathy skill. So uh, empathy is where um, we're really trying to think about that person's world. So 
sympathy might be kind of like, you know, oh, I really feel sorry for you. Um, but we're still kind of in our own head and we're kind of like, um, uh, trying to think about their situation from our point of view, but we're still caring about them. But empathy is where you think about, man, if I, uh, if I had your circumstances and your background and your family and your mom and your dad and your financial situation and your whatever, you know, whatever it is, um, geez, that must be tough, you know, to, to go into it with, without having the mentality of offering any sort of a solution, but just saying, can you tell me what your experience is like? just so I know what you are going through, you know, that's enough. Um, a lot of them just want to feel like their words and their situation is landing. That it's not like <clears throat> social media and stuff like Twitter, that's for like people kind of like just like dumping their words out into the ether and let you know who knows where it's gonna land. But when they're talking to a friend, they wanna really see whether this person is understanding what they're going through and cares. Okay? And so sometimes just be able to say, tell me more, asking them questions. What's that like for you? You know, and they say, you know, it's like this. And you're like, how come? You know, um, and then just be able to sit with that and say, that sounds really scary, you know, or even asking them, do you, do you feel alone, you know, in that, and they say, yes. And you just say, I'm just so sorry that you're going through that, you know, like to, to, yeah, the empathy is such a, it's such a muscle to develop that I don't think we're like born to be empathetic to people, but when you are able to kind of exercise that muscle and say to them, um, there's no way that I can understand exactly what you're going through, but what you're, what you're describing for me sounds so terrifying and sounds so awful and so heavy. Is there anything I can do, you know? And if they say, no, not really, don't take that as a rejection but they're just, I think they're just satisfied with you being there to listen, you know, to them, you know. Um, so that's, that's something to do is just to be able to listen and, and ask questions and do not go in guns blazing trying to like figure out some sort of a solution, you know, for their problem. Um, that's enough. Maybe inviting them out for a drink or a meal you know, invite them over for something, just um, sometimes it helps to have a little bit of a distraction, you know, like, let me just kind of, let's, let's go out and, you know, uh, get a massage together, you know, something like that. Um, but we're definitely not trying to, like, take them out of their pain, because they need to go through that pain, unfortunately, you know. question. Well, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Mm. I'll thank Lloyd for sharing with us today.